0: Hi, and welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies. Our guest today is Betty Anderson, who is a professor of history at Boston University. She received her PhD from the University of California, Los Angeles, and she works in the history of the Middle East, social and intellectual history of the Arab world, history of education, and modern world history. She is the author of Nationalist Voices in Jordan, The Street and the State, out from University of Texas Press in 2005, The American University of Beirut, Arab Nationalism and Liberal Education, out from University of Texas Press in 2011, and the book we're discussing today, A History of the Modern Middle East, Rulers, Rogues, and Rebels from Stanford University Press. Okay, welcome Professor Anderson to the New Books in Middle East Studies podcast. Thank you very much. So first before we begin, it's a tradition on the podcast that we ask about your general biography, like what led led you to academia? Um, what inspired you as you went along, what your first project
1: looked like? What I would say is I probably fell into academia without thinking about it very much. I was at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. I was a history and political science major. There was literally only one course available on Middle East history, and I was not remotely interested in studying it until I went to London in 1986, and the U.S. had issues with Gaddafi. There were A number of bombings in Europe at the time, and I literally just discovered the Middle East from that perspective and got so fascinated about what this place was and why does it continue to intrigue people. So I went back to uh, Trinity for my senior year, took the one course on the history of the Middle East, and then was completely hooked and went off to UCLA to get my PhD in Middle East history, but then had to learn far more than... Anyone else? Because I had done next to no research on the Middle East at that point. Did you go straight from your undergraduate degree? No, I went two years in D.C. and worked for the Washington Report on Middle East uh, Study, Middle East Affairs at that point.
0: Um, And then, what was the shape of your first project? What did it look like? What
1: led you to that idea? What was the kernel of it? Uh, Again, something of an accident because this was the 1990s. I, I actually did both Arabic and Persian and wanted to do something about. And identity framing, propaganda in the Iran Iraq War, and but could get into either country in the nineteen nineties. So went to Jordan on a Fulbright, hoping I would be able to find a project, and from there did find a project to write about how education and poetry and urban politics led to the creation of this Jordanian national movement and the Arab nationalist movement in the nineteen forties and nineteen fifties in Jordan.
0: And then he went on to write quite a bit about the academy in the Arabic-speaking world, like AUB. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about those projects?
1: And that the first project led to the second project. So I was really interested in not necessarily knowing about formal Hashemite identity formation of nationalism. I was most interested in how people wrote about who they were becoming mm-hmm. and looking at the poetry and particularly looking at schools. So I looked at school, school programs in both Jordan and Palestine in the interwar period leading to the 1950s. And I read a number of memoirs and people talked about this pivotal experience that they had at AUB. And so I finally got to AUB. I finally got to Lebanon and then AUB in 2000 because until that point, US citizens couldn't go, couldn't get a visa to go. And I was on Fulbright's and other government grants and was nervous about potentially losing that. So I only went in 2000 and toured AUB one day and came back to the hotel, got in the pool to cool off because it was late June of 2000, and thought, oh, I am so coming back here to do a project on Beirut, and I'm going to do a project on AUB. So I was literally in the the pool of the Carlton Hotel conceiving this project. And I didn't get a chance to go back and start that project until 2004 because I was finishing off the Jordan book. And so summer 2004 was the first time I did research in Beirut.
0: So today we're actually looking at quite a different book than your previous work, which is A History of the Modern Middle East, uh, subtitled Rulers, Rebels, and Rogues. Um, And I guess before we actually dive into the book itself, it'd be interesting to talk about the textbooks that are out there for um, individuals who teach introduction to the Middle East at the college level.
1: Uh, I had always, throughout my teaching since 1999, had used the William Cleveland book. And it's a very good uh, political history. It's a very good chronology of events. And then I supplemented that text with uh, prime primary sources, with articles and chapters from my colleagues, as I say in the introduction to this book, but I found that it was really difficult in the classroom to merge together this very clear political narrative with these articles about women in the Middle East, of um, textile weavers, of silk women silk workers in Lebanon, newspapers in Egypt. And so students understood this clear narrative, but couldn't really organically connect the these more monograph works into this larger narrative. So my from the very beginning, my hope was that I could find ways to organically put them together into a different kind of narrative.
0: And then there's also the game, the James Galvin um, book, uh, which is often used as a textbook. It's much slimmer than the Cleveland, and it, it's basically a thematic history and ties together different cultural and social elements. But it's less of this by the book Political History that the Cleveland is. Um, Well, the book, your book is quite unique in that it begins not in the late uh, 18th or the early 19th century, but you start quite early. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about that and what motivated that decision? Because that's certainly something we don't see in other textbooks or even courses on the modern Middle East. Uh,
1: I think... Part of it is the way I've always been teaching. It was also in discussion with Stanford University Press, in discussion with early reviewers of the proposal and the project that I wanted to put together, that uh, there is a real pedagogical question. Do we always have to start with what is Islam? Do we really have to start with what are these empires? And my answer in my classes, and and most of my classes are in the 19th and 20th century, some aspect of the Middle East, But I still always go back and tell students what is Islam so they understand and how does it evolve in the early empires. And I don't spend a great deal of time on it, but I do want to bring that up because issues like the Arab Natha of the 19th century does bring up that earlier period that does get reformed as part of national identity. And so I wanted to make sure that that appeared there and I could have, just slotted it in into the 19th century, but I wanted to have more of a chronological look at these events. And then we could go back how how they formed and then how they were reformulated and reframed by a later group. What I find really fascinating about the book is actually the subtitle, which functions as the book's
0: organizing principle. Um, as I previously mentioned, the Cleveland uh, textbook is very much by the nose, details, details. This is what happened then. This is what happened then. The um, Gelvin is very thematic. And what you do by introducing the subtitle of rulers, rebels and rogues is you introduce this thematic element to the text. It's organizing principle. Um, And you begin with these three empires. You begin with the Pahlavis, the Safavids, and the Ottomans, and this idea of of rulers. And I was wondering if you could um, speak specifically to starting with that moment and these rulers, and then how you work your way
1: down to the rebels and the rogues. Uh, For me, it comes from a class I've been teaching for the last five or six years, which is a Muslim Studies pro-seminar that is designed to be interdisciplinary and look at how to merge together history and religion and art history into a cohesive whole over how these early empires evolved, how um, Arab nomads can come out of the peninsula and go to Damascus and Baghdad, Turkish nomads coming in from central Asia, merging together to create the Safavid and Ottoman empires to a certain extent. And, Finding that just a historical approach or just a political approach didn't work, that I needed to merge these disciplines together to ask questions about how does governance evolve? How does legitimacy and authority evolve? How would the, the building of architectural monuments become a uh, key element in how a, a new leader gains legitimacy? And so in teaching that class for years, I really wanted to get that into the text about rulers to have a thematic run, thread through into the modern period of how someone like a Nasser or Reza Shah would also need to use similar tools to cement their rule to gain the, the legitimacy and the authority to rule over a di- dramatically different kind of state
0: a really wonderful way of working in this methodological principle of how different individuals within different strata of society orient themselves. Um so I was wondering if we could talk about the differentiation between rebels and rogues because again what's so great about this book is it really looks at individuals at all rungs of the social ladder and how they interact with one another. I mean rulers rulers, rebels and rogues are not mutually distinct at some I mean you mentioned Nasser. He definitely functions as both. Right. Uh
1: again this was an issue of writing this book I thought from the beginning it would be more of a social history and in fact the first proposal I put together for Stanford was more of a social history but the rulers kept sneaking in and so that's how it evolved to the, the thread of the book is rulers and and how they govern in these different types of systems from empires to modern states but then I started looking at you know who opposes them, who works with them. And that, for me, I teach that all the time, particularly in the 19th century, of these are the Ottoman Tanzimat, Muhammad Ali reforms. These are uh, actions that are taken for particular purposes by these rulers. But the, the people they're now encountering are not passive victims of this. They are finding ways to fight conscription on one angle, they're finding ways to use the new kinds of schools, the new kinds of jobs, the new kinds of institutions to formulate new identities for themselves, new lives for themselves. And then they're writing newspapers about who they're supposed to be in this new world. And so for me, I want, I'm really fascinated by their interactions with rulers, with state leaders. And those who I, I term as rogues, who are pe- groups that... Did not want to overturn entire systems. They don't want to bring down the Ottoman Empire or a particular leader, but they want to either reform it or they want to get particular positions in the governing system. And I took, I was, th- I was writing about this repeatedly and then didn't have a, a word for this. And Karen Barkey gave me the word of rogues where she talks about essentially rebellious clients of the Ottoman Empire who Rebel who, who, who wage attacks against institutions of the Ottoman Empire, but are not trying to necessarily overthrow it. They're trying to get access gateway points into it. So there I had my title of rogues. And then rebels I term as those groups who have actively sought to overthrow whatever governing system rules over them.
0: I also really appreciate the alliteration. I think that's a great way for students to remember these principal themes. Um, And then going back to the title, I mean, um, one thing that we see in both uh, the previous textbooks on the Middle East, the Cleveland and the Galvin, is the organizing principle of the Middle East as a geographic unit, a spatial unit. And I was wondering whether or not, I mean, how do you deal with the Middle East as a unit? Where is its borders? And the question always is, how to deal with the issue of North Africa and whether or not it should be included in the Middle East and how um, it fits into your larger project. Uh,
1: Part of it is the the ongoing conflict between how do we connect the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, I do certainly talk about North Africa, French colonization of Algeria, for example, in my classes, the Libyan fight against the Ottoman Empire and then the Italians as we move into the 20th century But I could only, honestly, only do so much in a text like this. It's already quite large. And for me, it was easier to think about where the Ottoman Empire and Safavid and Qajar empires had the most cultural, geographic, political influence. The Ottoman Empire certainly ruled over parts of North Africa for centuries, but had far less of the kind of direct impact than places like Cairo or Damascus. So it was just, I, I leave out lots of countries inside of the Eastern Middle East, don't cover the Gulf very much. There, there were just decisions that had to be made given the fact that I couldn't cover it all. And who, what areas pro- provide the kinds of patterns that would make sense on a textbook this large?
0: No, exactly. I mean, the colonial experience in North Africa is different. It's much earlier. The Ottoman influence in North Africa is to a a very different extent. You don't necessarily have that social connection. Um, but also culturally, I mean, there is an argument that there is a line somewhere (laughs) through Libya. I mean, people are always saying of the Arabic speakers, there are the fala, there are the rice eaters and there are the couscous eaters. Um, but now onto the more technical side of writing a textbook, which I find fascinating. Um, I'm really curious about how you incorporated images into a textbook because again, this book is quite large. It's what 500 600 pages. Yes yeah, something like that. <laughs> and the challenge is you overwhelm the, um, the readership with with images. Um, but you also use little um, side bubbles quite well. you don't you use them at the right amount and I was wondering how, you know, not on every page, not to explain every concept, but certainly the major ones, like the Tanzimat. Um, I was wondering how both visually to incorporate those into a textbook, what the process of that is like, but also um, what inspired, I mean, what, what are the considerations you take?
1: Um, so I want to send out props to Stanford University Press and Kate Wall, who gave me the right to have a large number of images in the text. And I want to give props to the editorial staff and the production staff at Stanford who had to rethink the format of a textbook. They had not published something like this, so they themselves had to think it through. So they gave me a great deal of support and help and aid individuals uh, at Stanford and Stanford as a whole. I also want to give props to Michelle Woodward, who I hired to find all of those pictures. And when we met, this point must be two years ago. We met up in Beirut, and I, what I, my mandate to her was to not find the normal pictures, not find the pictures that we can get headshots of Reza Shah, we can get headshots of a, a sultan, but to find something that is more about the rebels and the rogues, whenever possible. To, for example, in later chapters. When I talk about personality cult, not find just the normal picture we expect of, say, a Saddam Hussein, but the monuments that were built as part of a personality cult. And she did a spectacular job of finding these pictures from the earliest days on and negotiating the permissions for those and the costs for those that would then accrue to Stanford University Press.
0: I think the cover in particular that we talk about there a second is a really great representation of the different levels of rulers, rebels, and rogues. Because Nasser's, Jamal Abdel Nasser is in the uh, is fr- fr- first and forefront, and you see him, he's holding up his arms, but this is definitely a moment of, um, he's in a crowd. He's standing right above them, not um, like amidst them. And I think that you really have this representation of the fact that he is a rogue. He worked within that system. He is a rebel, but he's also a ruler. He's ascending. Um, I suppose now I'm really curious, uh, about how, I mean, the actual task of writing a textbook, um, again, you cover a large swath of history, uh, close to a thousand years. How do you incorporate all of that secondary literature into 600 pages? I mean,
1: we, we commented that it was quite large, but it's quite small for such a large period. Uh, when I first started, I thought that since I had been teaching an introduction to the Middle East and various sub or sub-genres of that for so many years, that really would be finding a way to write about my lectures. But, of course, it becomes a much bigger project, and it was a great project because I got to read what my colleagues were doing, and I, I got to read so much more about... Safavids and Qajars than i had ever read because my specialty is more in the Arab world and so much more about art history and so much more about the building of Istanbul and Isfahan and so it was just fascinating to read all of that but then I ended up with this enormous body of knowledge and so so much of the later writing was about finding patterns and being willing to give up threads that I just couldn't connect to the main patterns. Uh, much of the writing I did while I was on sabbatical and I, I went to Beirut and I just settled in next in an apartment next to AEB, got to go to every conference and talk that they held. And I you could, should see the notes I took during people's talks because like, oh, here's an issue I didn't know about and, and connect together. But in the end, it was about for me finding patterns. And I, I can't even tell you how, Difficult it was, particularly by the end. When I was in the 1970s and 1980s and 1990s, there was literally a moment at the very end where I had five themes, five chunks of information, and I had absolutely no idea where they fit. I, I, I was back in Beirut again. That was in a Christmas break and heading to a conference in Beirut, and I had pink and purple and blue magic markers, and I kept printing it out. And I have finally had an epiphany, and I figured out in chapters nine and 10 how to move those last five topics around. Half of them ended up in chapter nine, half of them in chapter 10. And then, even later on, to put an epilogue together, a chunk got taken out of that as well. But it was, for me, it's about finding patterns and hoping that by finding patterns, that's a gateway into the data.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, you've already discussed in passing so many of the challenges of writing a textbook like this, but I was wondering if there are any more you care to elaborate on. I mean, I mean, how much time
1: does a project like this take? Uh, I started this while my AUB book was being reviewed. So that might have been 2010 or so. And because I'm a little crazy, I thought, oh, I have extra time while I'm waiting for the reviewers to look at this uh, book why don't I start another one? And so that was probably summer or so of 2010. I started to put the the initial research in a couple of sample chapters together. So I would say started around 2010 ish. And then I did the last page proofs in January of 2016. So not that long ago. And then the book came out in April, 2016 and this was just a massive data, whereas opposed to a monograph, at least it's focused data. This was a massive data. And, and I was going down whole tracks to see where I would find new information for myself on rulers, rebels, and rogues to, to go into this idea of governance and legitimacy and authority and, and who, who stands up to that or wants to buy their way into that. It was just an enormous amount of time, and and organizing data is all I can tell you.
0: Have you taught an intro to the Middle East type class
1: since you've published the book? Are you planning on using the book in your classes? Uh, I've been using versions of this for years. Ever since, I would say, 2014 is when I delivered a, a completed manuscript to Stanford. And ever since then, so for two years, I've been using PDFs of whatever version of Chapter 2 or Chapter 3 existed. This is the very first semester that I'm making students actually buy the text. Mm-hmm. So no, both of the classes I'm teaching right now, they, the students have bought this text.
0: And what are those classes? Uh,
1: the, I'm doing the Muslim Studies Pro Seminar mm-hmm. again. And after, as soon as I started doing the research on AEB, I created a class on Americans in the Middle East in the 19th and 20th centuries. So I'm teaching that class again this fall. Oh, I imagine this could be very useful
0: for that. Um, so before we wrap up, I was just wondering what new projects do you have on the table? What are you,
1: what ideas are you flirting with? Uh, so I have a couple of projects going forward. Both are moving quite slowly. I think writing this book, um, it tired me out intellectually more so than the first two books. So, uh, I'm working slowly. I, I have a project where I've collected Lebanese political advertising since roughly 19, 2005 And I've I've been struggling to find a framework for that, but I'm starting to see that it might be actually in something of the framework of public service announcements that we see here in the United States, like Smokey the Bear. But I haven't had a chance to get down and get into the computer and figure out if what I've collected does fit into that kind of uh, project. It does fit into this because it is about... Government legitimacy in a place like Lebanon and how using new advertising techniques are a way that states, Lebanon, Jordan, all of these states are doing this as a way to nation brand, as a way, way to gain loyalty and new in the new world. I'm also doing a much larger project with Fida Daly at Georgetown University where we're so, oh, I think of it as social mapping the new, new Amman, Jordan and looking at the new entertainment zones like Rainbow Street, but also the rethought entertainment zones like Jebel Hussein and Abdu'n Circle. So we've physically had those areas mapped. We have had observations done there. We're going to probably move on to focus groups. And I've also had students social media mapping these sites to see how these new cafes, new restaurants are advertising themselves, presenting themselves out on the Internet, and then how customers are presenting themselves using those sites. But at the moment, we haven't done any analysis of the data. We have a lot of raw material.
0: That sounds like a really exciting project. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for giving us some of your time and reviewing the book with us. I'm really excited about using it in my own classes in the future. So, Again,
1: thank you for your service to the field. Well, thank you very much. I didn't necessarily think of it that way, but thank you very much. And I'm glad that people appreciate the text.